uh, called Faith, Hope, Love. And what we've been doing is we've been studying a letter to a, a, a very young church in Thessalonica. Many uh, scholars believe that it was the, one of the first letters that Paul wrote to any group of believers. And some background here in Acts 16 and 17, we read that, that Paul and his friend Silas, when, when they were spreading the gospel, went into Thessalonica, which is this strategic city. It's still around today. It's called Thessaloniki today, but it was a strategic city back then. They go in there. They're basically able to spend about three weeks in there before the persecution and the riots and the beatings get so great that Paul and Silas have to leave. Paul sends back Timothy and Silas to kind of give him a report about what's going on with Thessalonica. And as a result of that report that he, he receives from them, he writes them this incredible letter that we've been going through together. And today we're gonna be in 1 Thessalonians chapter two. We're gonna be starting in verse 13. I'm kind of gonna read our passage for us before we study it together. So it says this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as also to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last." So we're gonna be talking about some pretty important things today, some pretty important theological things. But what's happening in Thessalonica is the gospel got there, a revival broke out. They began to live the way that, that Jesus asked them to live. They received the word, they accepted the word. It changed their lives. It didn't just change their lives, changed their families' lives. It turned the entire region upside down and it changed history as we know it. And the truth is that same gospel is the gospel we're talking about today. And it has that same kind of power. It will change you. It will free you up. It'll forgive your sins. It'll make Jesus the center of your life. It'll change your family. It'll change this community. And I believe it can change history as we know it. And that's, what we're, that's where we're being challenged. The first week we talked about how this faith, hope, and love that they, they showed was changing everything, that it was influencing the, the regions around Around them. We've talked about our fruit and how important it is that we're not just a, a people that let our fruit rot on the ground, but we express that fruit, that we have the boldness to kind of share our faith. And once we do share our faith, some interesting things happen. And unless you have what we're going to call a good theology of suffering, you can be very confused. And so what's happening in Thessalonica is they've become very confused. And what we're talking about today is that you can endure suffering, that you can trust God, that he's got the best for you, that he intends to use these things in great ways in your life. You might not feel him moving right now in what you're going through, but he is there. You can trust him and he is always with you. And before we kind of study this passage, I believe that Paul is kind of tapping into uh, what, what Jesus spoke about in Matthew 7. And in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we know this as the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus is doing is giving what 
is one of his most famous sermons and he's wrapping it up and he wraps it up with this fascinating statement in Matthew 7, starting in verse 24. Jesus says, everyone then who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. What's interesting about this story that Jesus is telling these people is both of these people, the wise man and the foolish man, sustained and endured storms. Hard storms, wind, rain, they were beaten. I mean, it was like, it was like an all out, just everything was coming against them. But the only difference is one man, both of them, by the way, if you read it again, hear the word of God. And the difference is one person hears the word of God, accepts it and says, I'm going to apply this to my life. Another person hears the word of God and says, this is clearly optional. This is clearly just somebody's opinion. I'll do what I want with my hot body. And what they decide to do is build their house as close to the beach as you possibly can on the sand. And they wake up every day, you can imagine, with the best view. They open the door, and when they leave the house, their toes are in the sand. That's pretty amazing. That's awesome. And they're thinking, look what I've got. Look how beautiful this is. I, can, I fall asleep to the waves every night. Good thing I didn't listen to that Jesus guy. He would have just said, this is all wrong. And sure enough, the storms come like they always do for all of us. And that person is wiped out because they did not listen to what the word of God says and do what it says. The storms themselves are inevitable and you need to be ready. You need to be ready for those storms because they come for us all and you can't prepare in the moment. I know this from growing up in South Florida. You cannot prepare in the moment. When a hurricane comes, you can't be, oh, this wind is rough. Let's board up the windows. You know how hard it is to hold a piece of plywood when the wind is going 45 miles per hour? And then you think you're gonna go and get gas and groceries? All those stores are closed. You cannot prepare for the storm in the moment. You can't wait for a hard time to come and then be like, God, I'm gonna do what you've asked me to do. I'm gonna live my life in a way that is worthy of the gospel. We have to be in a state of spiritual readiness. And that is what Paul is trying to get across. That's what we see in this story. That's what we're reminded of. So we have to be in a place of always being spiritually prepared. So how do we do that? How are we spiritually prepared? And with that in mind, we're gonna get back into our passage for the day. Starting in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter two, it says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And we see the same two verbs we see in Jesus's sermon. You received it and you accepted it. You heard it and you did what it said. You didn't say, well, this is just clearly again, like just something out there. You connected it and God was doing a real change in you. 
a real change in you. And I love the way that Moses puts this. Moses says this in Deuteronomy 32, 47. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. When we, when we talk about the word of God, we're not talking about simply an ancient text. We're not talking about simply just some old writings. We're not talking about an article in a newspaper. We're not talking about the latest fiction book that's gonna be turned into a really bad movie that you are all still gonna go pay for and go see. What we're talking about when we talk about the word of God is we're talking about what happens in the bottom of verse 13, that it's at work in us, that it's changing us, that it's shaping us, that it's growing us, it's giving us new life. It's building up in us a desire to love people, even when they're hard to love. That's what the word of God does for us. It strengthens us. It prepares us. It protects us from, from all the storms. And what, was, what were they being prepared for? What were they being protected from? And so Paul goes on. It says in verse 14, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus. When he says churches of God, I don't want you to envision that there's buildings. Uh, that didn't come along till the fourth century. There was no like, he's like, you've become imitators of First Baptist of Philippi. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about groups of believers. The church has always meant groups of people that follow Jesus and love one another. He says, the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all mankind. You have to remember the Thessalonians, uh, they're just, they're very young into this. I mean, this is the first that they're even hearing about this and, and everywhere they go to share Jesus, they're getting beaten. They're getting arrested. They're getting arrested by Jewish people. They're like, well, why is everybody so opposed to this whole thing that Jesus has done for them? And Paul is telling them that this is normal. The fact that you're getting arrested, the fact that you're getting beaten up is Christianity 101. And he tells them, let me tell you the story of how Jesus was betrayed, about all the stuff that Jesus went through, that he was betrayed by his own men. And let me tell you the story of, of what Jesus said to us in Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. We love that word, witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Do you know in the original language, that that word witnesses is actually the word martyrs. Jesus says, you will be my martyrs. You will be my people who die for what they believe. That is what Jesus is telling his disciples. Andrew, one of his disciples was crucified in Greece. Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas, one of his disciples was pierced by a spear and killed in India. Philip was killed by the Romans. Tradition says that Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. It tells us that Bartholomew, good old Bart, was martyred in Arabia. James was clubbed to death in Syria. Matthias, the new guy that replaced Judas after Judas died, Matthias was burned to death in Syria. Simon was killed in Persia after refusing to sacrifice to their sun god. John died a natural death, if that's what you wanna call it. They tried to boil him to death. It didn't work, so they exiled him on the island of Patmos. Peter and Paul were both killed around the same time in 66 AD in Rome by Emperor Nero. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul had his head removed. The early church is stained by the blood. 
of its founders. That's where the church came from. And we have the audacity sometimes to say, I shouldn't face the same thing. I surely, I won't face those same things as a believer in Christ. And what we are going through today and what some Christians are going through today and what Thessalonica was going through in their time is totally normal. You are not alone in this persecution. That's what he's trying to let them know. The perse- they persecuted the prophets. They persecuted Jesus. You are in good company and you are being prepared to suffer well. James says this in James 1 verse 2. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. The only way to be perfect and complete and lacking nothing is to endure suffering. And as a pastor, it's important for me that you have a good theology of suffering. Now, what does that even mean? You have a theology of suffering. You've got a great theology of suffering. When it comes to like every other realm of life, when it comes to education, we understand and we embrace and we acknowledge and we accept that to get your doctorate degree, you got to go to at least five years of school, suffer through like some boring lectures. You've got to maybe in some ways amount a huge amount of, of debt for your education. Then you, once, you, once you graduate, you got to write, write a dissertation. You got to defend it against your peers. And then you got to go to a residency and, and do that. You don't even choose where you go. They send you to a place. And we understand that if you have your doctorate degree right now, that you have suffered to earn that, that's, that's a theology of suffering. We know that professionally, that if you're a business owner, that if you're especially a small business owner, that you've exposed yourself to more debt than anybody else in this room. You've exposed yourself to more lawsuits. You've exposed yourself to criticism. You've exposed yourself to long hours and sleepless nights, to failure. And people come along and they're like, man, it's so great that you could be your own boss. When behind the scenes, you have suffered a lot to be able to to even earn that. We understand this physically. You know, I remember there was a time when everyone was drinking wheatgrass. Y'all remember that? You'd walk into a health food place, at least in Miami, and they would literally have grass growing out of the counter. And you would order like a special shake and they would just cut the grass that was growing out of the counter and put it in a shake, blend it and sell it to you for 15 bucks. Y'all remember that? And, and, and like people do the weirdest things in the name of, of what they're trying to do for themselves physically. They drink the grossest drinks. And I see the faces they make when they drink it. They're like, ooh, so good. And it's like disgusting. And then like kale came around and kale tastes exactly like bug spray. You guys know that, right? It's disgusting. I was talking to somebody in the back and I was like, do you like kale? And they're like, I like my kale. Oh, no lie. She said, massaged. If there is a food out there that you have to massage it before you eat it, that is the worst kind of stuff. And we do that stuff. We, we drink raw eggs. We drink kale. You know, it's just, it's, it's the grossest stuff. And then the stuff we withhold ourselves from, like when we do these dumb diets, I'm on the baby food diet. You know, there's like these different things that we do. I know people who are literally ingesting tapeworms for, because of their diet. You guys are, oh, let me just be clear. Some of you are suffering because you're growing. God's doing a work in you. Some of you are suffering because you're an idiot. Like, why would you, why would you do that? And there's a, there's a huge difference. And when we, when we work out, it's kind of the same thing. You know, like there's a big fad now. I was asking somebody back, what is a health fad now? And it's, it's cold plunges. 
Remember when we did the ice bucket challenge for ALS? People were like willfully doing that like two times a day. They get these giant ice buckets and they sit in it and they're like, for the glory of my body. And then they get out. You know what I mean? We do crazy things. We suffer for ourselves. We, we work out. I work out with Joel. Well, I try to like basically five days a week. And when I get there, it's the worst thing. He gets so much joy out of seeing me suffer. His face is like, yes. And he's like, you, my daughter helped me plan this. I'm like, clearly a child came up with this. And he's like, got these stupid workouts. And the whole time, like the more I grumble, the bigger his smile gets. I'm like, I hate you. I hate this. And for the love of God, would you just put your shirt back on for everybody, especially me, but everyone just... Come on, man. And, and so we do this. We, we understand. But the, the reason is I have goals. I don't want my children to have to take care of me one day because I refuse to take care of myself today. And I, and I have to suffer to earn that. And we understand that there's some suffering involved when, when it comes to growing in all those ways naturally. We understand that naturally. In the natural world, you have to, to prune plants. You have to cut off branches so they'll produce more fruit. Friday, I had coffee with somebody that works for Tiger Vineyards. Tiger Vineyards, of course, is in northern Georgia. It's about 30 minutes from here. And he was saying that they're winning all kinds of awards for their vineyards. And I was thinking, how is that even possible? Like, what about the red clay? You guys know the red clay. I mean, that stuff is hard. It's just, it's like a rock. It's basically cement. And his eyes got big. And he said, it's especially because of the red clay. He said, the harder the roots have to fight for water, the better the grapes are. He said, the soil in Tiger, Georgia is just like the soil in Providential, France. It's so strange, but we understand that, that these, these vines have to suffer to earn their fruit. That suffering is the crucible in which strong men and women are made. But for some of us, we draw the line at spirituality. If, if spirituality isn't going to remove my suffering, I don't need it. And if I follow Jesus, then that means that everything should be rainbows and butterflies, that I should be healthy and wealthy, and that all my obstacles should be removed from me. When the truth is, when God steps in, he puts purpose in that pain. He wastes nothing. He comes along and says, there is pain that you will endure in this world, but I will not waste it on you. I'm going to be growing something in you and through you. But we think following Jesus doesn't, must mean that I have zero problems. When the truth is, following Jesus doesn't mean you skip the storms of life. It means that you will survive them. And you can survive them with your relationships intact. You can survive those storms with your faith, hope, and love intact. You can survive those storms because God is with you and there's a purpose in them. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Uh, this life is just an endurance race. That's what it is. But having God with us means we will survive. 
Romans 5, Paul writes this in Romans 5, verse 3. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that, that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We're promised two things when we follow Christ. We're promised peace with God. I have peace with God, an obstacle-free, barrier-free relationship with God. I don't need a mediator. I don't need a priest. The Bible says if I follow Jesus, I am a priest. Jesus is my intercessor. He lives in me, and I have a free reign to talk to God whenever I want. But he also, the second promise is that we will face persecution. That's going to happen. If you're actually following Jesus, you're going to face persecution. And my question is, are you too comfortable to be willing to grow? Are you too comfortable to be willing to have God come into your life and say, that doesn't belong there? To have God come into your life and say, hey, we're going to get rid of this so that you'll produce more fruit. To have God come into your life and say, I'm sorry, but you're going to be facing the same storms as everyone else. The difference is, watch how I mean it for good. Are we willing to be uncomfortable? Are you comfortable? If you're wondering why your life seems boring, why your life seems trivial, why, why walking with God is, is not necessarily giving you that life that you've been looking for, that your walk with God is lacking power, it's lacking the presence of God, it's lacking the peace of God, the strength of God. My question to you is, are you comfortable? Because the truth is, if your walk with God is missing those things, then I can pretty much guarantee you, you're comfortable right now. And it's in those moments that we get uncomfortable that we come face to face with God. So how's your faith? Maybe it's lacking zeal. Are, are, you, are you struggling with how to lead others to Christ or even leading others to Christ? Or are you too comfortable? If your faith is so private that no one else can guess that you're even a believer, maybe you're too comfortable. And these people in Thessalonica, they're enduring in a huge way. And Paul is pouring into them this theology of suffering and leaning into the word of God, finding strength in the word of God so that they can endure these storms and the persecution that's coming their way. In verse 15, he says, he's talking about those who have basically hindered mankind. He says, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So always, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. When it comes to suffering, especially at the hands of others, nothing feels better than getting your revenge. Nothing feels better than vindication. Man, if you come out me and you harm me, I cannot wait to harm you. But when, it, when we see persecution in the Bible, the hard part about persecution in the Bible is what we see is endurance, not vindication. It's not all about us getting our revenge in the end. It's about us enduring. We see turning the other cheek, not dropping a people's elbow on people for the things that they're doing to us. Jesus went as far to say that we should love our enemies and that we should pray for them. That's what, that's what God intends. Vengeance is the Lord. So how, how is this encouraging to us? How can we be encouraged through this? In three ways. First of all, you are not alone in your suffering. If you talk to any Christian, any believer, any mature believer, you'll, you'll begin to see that their, their path, their walk had a lot of suffering in it, a lot of endurance in it. And they will tell you, I will tell you, I would not trade any of that pain for the person that God has made me through it. 
I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't go, God, I'd rather not go through that pain. Let me just go back to being that immature person. But every Christian that you see, this room is filled with people who want to encourage you because they've been there before. You are not alone in your suffering. And what our enemy wants to do is he wants to keep you isolated. He wants you to keep you alone so he can continue telling you lies, continue telling you that the reason why you're enduring suffering is because you're a bad and horrible person, is because something is different from you. But look at all these other people. Everything is awesome with them. What's wrong with you? But when you get in a group of people, you begin to realize that you are not alone in your suffering. And number two, the word of God will strengthen you. God's word is, is like that food. It's like that shake that we drink. It's like the, the cold plunge. It's like the massaging of the kale. We do all that stuff for our physical bodies. Jesus talks about God's word like it's a meal. I have, I have, I have food that you don't even know about. We have this meal that we get to partake of every day and every moment. It fills us up and nourishes us and it prepares us for these storms. The word of God will strengthen you. And, and number three is that you can trust God. David says, although I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, my God is with me. That you are not alone, that God is working in this suffering, working in this pain for a purpose. It's the same that comes to us all living in a fallen, broken, dark, confused world. It's going to come at you. But when it does, you can trust God and what he's doing in that. Listen, storms are coming in your life. Some of you have been through some significant storms and you've got some shingles missing and you've got water damage and we can all see it from here. There's some marks in your life that show that you have endured the difficulty of life. But whether it's marital issues, whether it's been job issues for you, whether it's been health issues or maybe even addiction issues, some of us in this room have experienced suffering. And following Jesus in our culture is not going to get easier, it's going to get harder. That's why you must be prepared. Being a Christian is not gonna be easier, it's gonna be harder, but you can be encouraged. And the fourth century Emperor Constantine made Christianity the official religion of Rome. And Emperor Constantine started putting a lot more emperor, but put a lot more kingdom, uh, earthly kingdom, into uh, a lot more empire into Christianity than, than what it needed. He started building these giant cathedrals on the bones of martyred disciples started building these giant structures on top of them. And instead of Christians flourishing in this grassroots disciple-making process, they started building buildings and forgot why it was the gospel in the first place. And what they started to do is they, they, they thought, they forgot that, that life on life, winning people to Jesus through a relationship and sharing of the gospel and doing life with each other in discipleship was what they were supposed to be doing. Instead, they became architects. They became power mongers. They became persecutors themselves. When Pope Urban II did that, that first crusade out there, just wiping people out who weren't believers. And we started building cathedrals and not building culture. And we lived in a haze of being Christians without persecution. It was, it was like we were lulled to sleep by being Christians without persecution. And I'm thankful for that, but somewhere along the way, Christianity became something you could be. You could be a Christian without being personally devoted to Jesus. It just started happening. I can be a Christian without being personally devoted to Jesus. And that day is over. We are raising the first post-Christian generation in history. The first generation in America 
that will know more people who aren't Christians and in fact are antagonistic against Christians than they will know people who are believers. That's, that's the generation what we're raising right now. And to be honest, I'm really excited about that. I'm excited about that because that's when the church flourishes. That's when revival begins to happen. That's when those things that we're beginning to see and kind of see signs of start happening. When the church hears the word of God, receives it and accepts it and is prepared for the storm. And when, when that storm brings fruit, that fruit is so much stronger. We're not raising a soft generation of Christians. We're raising a strong generation of Christians, humble, resilient, peaceful, loving, abided, that are rooted in Jesus and prepared well, we're raising that kind of generation. When you can talk about Jesus when you have cancer, you can talk about Jesus even through the cancer with joy and tears in your eyes, not tears of sadness, but tears of a hopeful reunion. That's when Jesus becomes real to other people. When I show up to celebrate recovery on Monday nights, when I go to a graduation at Men's Challenge of the Smoky Mountains, when I, when I hang out there, I see people whose lives were in shambles, who lost every single thing that they held dear. It was all destroyed because of the pain of addiction, but by God's grace with one claw mark at a time, they're pulling themselves out of the pit by the power of the gospel that has made them new. And they cannot wait to tell people about what Jesus is doing in their life. That kind of faith is the kind of faith the people of Thessalonica were living because they heard the word of God and they did what it said. Their house was built on the rock and no wind, no storm, no beating would ever shatter what God was doing. It could not destroy it. And I want that for my life and I want that for your life. And my question for you is, are you ready for that kind of storm? Are you ready for that kind of storm? And that depends on us. That depends on your devotion to Jesus Christ. That depends on your time with God. When, it, when it's not just the Bible anymore, when it's the word of God, when we live by the word of God, let God's word be true and every man be a liar is what Paul says. If we're willing to live that way because the days of cruise control Christianity are over, they're over. As Moses says, the word of God needs to be our very life because in it we will find Jesus. First Thessalonians goes on in verse 17. It says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short, short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with, with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. In chapter three, verse six, he says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. If you want a kind of joy that is visceral, if you want a kind of life that feels like life, if you want that kind of energy, if you want that kind of power, the Bible says it comes upon you 
when you are his witnesses. It comes upon you when you see somebody that you've been praying for your entire life come to know Jesus Christ, that gives you a joy and it makes it all worth it. And that is what he's saying. He says, I want you to have that kind of immense joy from seeing someone's life change because you share the gospel to them. The gospel didn't come to us to stop. The gospel came to us because it was on its way to another person. And for some of us, this is where it stopped. But there is a whole nother chapter in Hebrews 12, 1. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy set before Jesus? That joy was you, you having your life changed, you being able to enter the throne room of God. That joy was you. And I don't care who you are in this room, if you would describe yourself as a good person or a bad person, if you're married, if you're single, if you're widowed, if you're divorced, if you're a student, if you're a teenager, if you just retired, Whoever you are, God loves you and he's written you a love letter because he loves you that much. And it's hard for us to believe or imagine, but God delights in you. The Bible says he rejoices in us, that in Christ, God is thrilled with us. The Bible tells us that the only reason why we love is because he chose to love us first, because he loves me. My soul and my life now has a purpose. I now have dignity in Jesus Christ. And I believe that he will finish what he started, that I am a new creation, that the, the old is gone and that the new has come, that he will not hold your sins against you when your soul rests in him. Paul writes it this way in Romans 8, 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, and all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. So my question is, why are you wasting a second of your life without knowing that kind of love, without living for that kind of love, without experiencing that kind of love, even in nakedness, famine, even in the persecution that comes against you, even in those things, we are more than conquerors because God is using it to do a work in us. And it's time for us to stop being so comfortable and begin embracing and enduring the storms of this world for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the joy of seeing someone we know or love lives being changed. Let's pray together. Father, I am so grateful for this work. It's hard to say at times, it's hard to say in the middle of it, but God, we are so grateful for those hardships in our lives, those things that we would never have chosen for ourselves, but you chose for us and it changed us. It shaped us. It made us a better person. It made us more like Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would be a church now more than ever 
who are prepared to weather the storm. And when we're in the middle of that storm, we won't be ashamed by it, that we'll get around other believers, that we'll be encouraged that they're weathering the storm as well. And God, that we would have the joy of seeing that pain has a purpose, that in that pain, somebody heard and saw my testimony and the joy that I have in the middle of it and decided they wanted some of that and gave their lives to Jesus Christ. God, make us a people that burn with a desire to see people come to know you. Make us a people who suffer well. God, I pray for that person in this room who for the very first time is hearing of the plan of God, the joy of following God, the love that you have for us. God, I pray that they would decide in this moment, I don't wanna live the rest of my life not knowing that kind of love. And in the sincerity of their heart, they would say right now, Father, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. God, I wanna turn from my sin. I wanna run to you. I'm tired of living the way this world has asked me to live. I wanna endure the storm and I wanna do that with you. God, I pray in this moment that they would ask you to forgive their sins, that they would give you their life, that they would believe that what Jesus did on the cross was for them, that he died in their place. God, I pray right now that they would believe that Jesus rose from the grave, conquering sin and death and a plan for them. God, I pray that you would surround them with a love that cannot be stopped. God, we're so grateful for new life and the work that you're doing in this church. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Can we give